I woke up in the middle of the night. Well, it's 3.05 a.m. And the Holy Spirit said, Go and record your journey to preaching. And so here it is. I'm going to entitle this episode, My Journey and the Grace He Gives Me to Preach. It's long, so I hope that you have the patience to listen to it all. I get to rambling, just kind of fast forward, but I hope you enjoy. I hope it ministers to your heart. Preaching for me is a complete out-of-body experience, and for many years I was uncomfortable sharing what I'm getting ready to share because there is a part of me that feels extremely unworthy and I think that that's a wise part of me because the anointing to preach or the grace to preach if you will is not something that God gives everybody I really don't know how or when or why that I became a preacher, to be honest. But the clearest memory in my mind is the church, the Greater Revival Church of God in Christ on Ferdinand Street, Seattle, Washington. And I can see vividly this watch night service where they were doing tag team preaching this particular night. And it was watch night and the missionaries and the preachers were going forth. And if you've ever seen a tag team, really the person who's next that's up to the person. Like they don't, you, there's no program or I know we've gotten sophisticated. Perhaps the new version of these things feature a program, but this particular night, something in me and I had to be about eight or nine years old. I think it's also important to know that, um, my mother, um, had me when she was about 24 years old. I was her firstborn child. And she is and was diagnosed at the time of my birth with severe schizophrenia. And she was essentially unable to really care for me. So I lived in a number of foster homes 
throughout my early childhood, uh, probably around the third or fourth grade, my mother, uh, after being really deemed unable to care for me, um, was told by the state that she needed to find a family member that would be willing to care for me. And it just so happens that her birth mother, um, who did not raise her, her my maternal grandmother, um, had resurfaced in her life, someone that didn't raise her, or her siblings for that matter. And this woman agreed to take care of me um, for a season of my life. And it had to be around the second or third or fourth grade. I know somewhere in between there. She was um, a devout Lutheran. And she attended this very interesting church. And I don't, I, I, I know, I mean, very little about what it means to be Lutheran. But at this particular time, the church that she attended was a church that had a black pastor and a white pastor. And my grandmother was really into community service. And I had an aunt named Ruby, who I assume was a really close friend of hers who lived across the street from the church. And so often she and I would go to the church and we would spend long time. This is beautiful brick and mortar that had a house next to it. And the house was where they had children's Sunday school. Anyway, this church was very interesting. It had a black preacher and a white preacher. And that was really, that's my first memory of what it meant to what 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 it meant to be a pastor or a preacher. Um, and I just remember that when the white choir would sing, we would use the hymn book. And when the black choir would sing, the choir for which I was in, we would sing different kinds of songs. And that just really stood out to me. But I was enamored by the preacher. I could, like, that was sort of the first black male presence, the, the, my introduction to what it meant to be a black male because my mother had a series of boyfriends, but I never seen them operating in occupations. Well, I see them operating in occupations, but not occupations that, number one, I knew at the time or understood or number two, <laughs> like, I'll be proud to repeat, if you will. Uh, but I remember just being enamored with this preacher, and and I don't know his name or, or anything, but um, when I, so I spent a lot of time at that Lutheran church in Tacoma, Washington, because my grandmother was serving food, or, you know, they had a cloth, clothing pantry or something, and she would, you know, be there to... Um, pass things out or wh whatever her, her ministry was. And 
I just remember vividly being able to go there. So when my mother started to have children again, probably around the age of six, between the ages of six and eight, my mother started having children again. And it just so happened that one of my brothers ended up living um, with uh, a woman who happened to be Kojic. And so ever so often I would go to connect with him uh, and sometimes it meant that because I was I would go back and forth between my maternal grandmother and my mother. Um, I would, um, in order for my mother to see my brother or for me to connect with my brother, I would have to go to this little Kojic church. Well, it wasn't little, but this Kojic church called the Greater Revival Church of God in Christ. And I just remember that because my mother was mentally disabled. She couldn't really process what was happening in this Pentecostal space. So she would be crying or like really overprotective. And I just, I, that was the only time that she would be there. And I became really, really fascinated. Well, after my mother had her second child, um, my youngest brother also uh, went to this particular foster home. And so my mother decided that it would be ideal for me and my brothers to be in the same foster home, which means that I got to go regularly to this church that I had visited on a couple of occasions because that's the foster home that my brother was in. And so my second introduction at a very young age to what it meant to be a preacher was this gray-haired, like strong, uh, anointed, a man who was so different from any other preacher that I had ever experienced because, you know, my maternal grandmother was going to a Lutheran church. And this man's name happened to be uh, Superintendent Luther J. Green. And he um, and his wife were stately. It was just the most amazing thing. And so I had decided that I couldn't remember the old Lutheran preacher's name. I had decided that, like, I'm going to be just like Luther J. Green. So I would watch him. I would model him. And this particular uh, night, he allowed me to um, uh, preach during this watch night service. And that back in the day, they didn't let the missionaries like stand behind the pulpit. They let them stand behind the communion table. But he let me stand behind the pulpit. I had no idea why. My grandmother says that I preached about condoms or something like that. I don't know. I, it was just something interesting. But after that, it was like life as, as sort of, um, it's really hard to explain because it's not like, I, I don't know what it's like to be a child prodigy or anything. I'm not saying that at all because I was just a little kid, but what started to happen for me is that people around me, and particularly my my grandmother, the woman who was my foster mother, she she helped me to realize the potential and the gift of preaching inside of me in a way that was very interesting, because when the Lord called me to preach 
like she made it her business to make sure that I got the Holy Ghost. And it was interesting because I would go to church with her, you know, all the time and kind of just be there. And, and, and the church that we were raised in, that Greater Revival Church of God in Christ, listen, they the missionaries and the children, if you're not Kojic, missionaries are generally women credential holders, women who identify as preachers or teachers. They um, sat adjacent to us. So we sat with or behind the deacons. And when they would shout, all the kids would get up and shout and what have you. And it was just this traditional Kojic feel. It just so happened that my experience of the preacher began to be nurtured by people who were around me and the pastor let me preach and people, I, I can recall in my mind, like people um, picking me up from greater revival and taking me to preach other places. And I was just so young and, and I was having, cause I've always sort of been an introvert while I was having this sort of uh, curated experience as a preacher, I was also having this, ex this, this out of body experience where it's really difficult to explain, but like when you know that you're called to do something, like you don't, it, it's not you. And so I would be, you know, like in the fifth or sixth grade, like walking down the street and I would find like a Bible, like just on the street in a box or something like that. And I'd learned how to like write sermons or, well, that was sort of like a, a like a really critical time in my, in, in my life. But I was also, uh, it just so happened that the, the woman who was raising us decided that she was going to move to, from Seattle, Washington to Portland, Oregon. And I think at that particular time, I was in the sixth or seventh grade. I don't recall. Um, and when I, when we traveled there, it was very interesting because the church that we joined was pretty established, a larger church. And I had a traditional experience as a child, right? Like I was in the sunshine band and on the junior usher board and in the choir. Um, but th there was a part of me that was not embraced because I, they, they didn't see me as a young preacher or kid, but there was this church called the Emmanuel temple church of God in Christ United. Um, and th this, they weren't, they're not traditional culture, but they were, um, my aunt went there and my aunt, um, before we had joined the church that we ended up going to the Walker Temple Church of God in Christ, we had visited that church because that's where my aunt went. And my grandmother shared with the pastor at the time, his name was Bishop Wright, um, and his wife, Mother Maggie Wright, shared with them that I was a preacher, a young preacher. And I was like literally in sixth or seventh grade. And so those people embraced that in me and they would pick me up from Walker Temple or from my home and they would bring me to that church and they would let me preach like on a number. I just remember one time <laughs> as a child, like it's just overwhelming, right? Like I would raise an offering for myself in the sixth grade. <laughs> like I don't, I don't even know, like it, it, it's something supernatural. But once I got in high school, I had sort of gained some in a new place where I don't know anybody like, um, and I had gained this uh, reputation 
for being a preacher at a very young age. And I was really embarrassed. Like when I tell you I was embarrassed by it, I don't know because I was coming into myself and I wanted to be cool and I wanted to be embraced by other people. And it was almost like the idea of being a preacher and that gifting was so far from how I wanted to see myself because I was influenced by the people around me that I literally denied that part of me. Like, and I did, I couldn't, I didn't want people to call me preacher boy. And once I got to like high school, I was like, listen, I don't do that anymore. I'm not a preacher. Like I didn't take any engagements. I didn't go preach anywhere. And, and the other interesting thing is there was another young preacher in this particular era that was like, he knew how to do stuff that I didn't know how to do. Like he knew how to tune up and like, he got to preach in the convocation. I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like, even what I was doing, this is how Satan works. He would tell me like, even what you were doing before was so insignificant, right? Like you didn't know how to do what this guy does. Like, even if you were preaching, you wouldn't even match up to this guy. And I just always remember like thinking that I would hear him and a part of me would be like, you could do that. And another part of me would be like, no, you can't. And so the peer pressure of wanting to be normal and not wanting people to call me preacher boy. And then the pressure of, of believing that if I were to walk fully in my calling as a young, um, growing boy, like how would I be embraced? Would I be able to do the things that people, um, other people acknowledged as like things that preachers do? And so I just quit. I quit. I, I didn't. I think when I was about 12 or 13, I was just like, I'm not a preacher anymore. And I think that it was hard for my grandmother because there was a lot of investment. And it was also the thing that we bonded on, right? This is this four or five year experience where she herself nurtured the gifting inside of me. I mean, she would like buy me Bibles and, and commentaries and she would just do things that it, 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 it was a beautiful thing because it was like, I wasn't in competition with other kids because other kids wanted to play basketball or go outside. And so what she did for me, like nobody was like, Oh, you favor him or anything like that. She just <laughs> like nobody else wanted a Bible or a commentary or to like look and read on some of her notebooks or like, you know, go to the convocation or like listen, lock yourself in a room and listen to all the cassette videos from the convocation. Like nobody else wanted to do that. And so there, I had no competition. But when I, it, it, it's almost like um, Peter. Was it Peter? If it wasn't Peter, then charge it to my head and not to my heart. When he was invited to walk on the water and then when he became cognizant of his own person, like what his own ability, like his own surrounding, he was like, nah. <laughs> and he started to sink. And that was me, except I couldn't be saved because I was so, and then, you know, there were other things happening in my life, right? I was going through puberty. I was coming to know myself as a sexual being. Um, I was coming to know myself as a person with the capacity to have friends and to be a high schooler and to be all these different things. And those were all at war with my gifting. Um, and the 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 foundational thing is that 
there was something in me that I never was able to shake. I mean, I did it when I went off to college and I literally, I don't, I can't say that I was saved from about 17, from 16, 17 on. Like, I just was like, forget that. I'm not a preacher. I go to church because we had to go to church. But if I could find a way not to go to church, <laughs> like I would find a way. Um, and um, I remember, um, I remember going to college and, you know, going, I, I, I went to a couple of churches, but not like long-term, you know, I really learned a lot about myself as a human. Um, I still had a little bit of that um, sort of preacher boy thing. Everybody knew I was churchy. And so, you know, I would let people buy me liquor. I, I learned how to hold my liquor a little bit joined the fraternity. I mean, just a lot of things happened. Still just no connection. But God would do things where I would be like enamored with preaching. I would like, um, you know, be watching Bishop G.E. Patterson. Didn't go to anybody's church, didn't profess salvation, nothing. I would be, you know, like, I, and I would tell my grandmother just to appease her, like, yeah, I'm not a preacher, but one of these days I'll get saved and I'll be a deacon, you know, like, you know, something like that. I really carried that. I carried that all the way through my 20s, literally. I was like, I'll be a deacon. I'm like, I'll be, you know, and my grandmother would listen. She, <laughs> she wouldn't say, you know, sometimes she'd be like, mm, but I think that she knew on the inside what God was going to do. And if she didn't know what God was going to do, she'd be praying. And so I would be, I have all these notes where like on Easter, and this is, I'm talking to tell y'all, I wouldn't save at all. I would, um, write down sermons. I would preach sermons to myself on holidays or like, you know, I would write, I have notebooks where I wrote out like imaginary people who would be on the program. Like, you know, just all these kinds of things that sort of always followed me. And I never understood like why that was the piece of me that always followed me. And so um, I was just enamored with preaching. So I went through um, pretty much my um, probably until about um, 25, 24, 25? No, yeah, 24. Well, when I was 24, um, I moved um, to, I was working at uh, uh, my first like professional job at Southern Oregon University in this little town at the edge of the California border. And uh, I had decided that I wanted to go to graduate school. And I decided I wanted to go to graduate school the year before, but didn't get into any of the schools that I applied for. A whole different testimony for a whole different day. And I um, got um, uh, accepted into the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I had never gone to Las Vegas. I didn't know nobody there. Nothing. Like, I just wanted to do something new. I wanted to get out of Oregon. I didn't want to go back to Seattle at that particular time. And I was up for an adventure because I had nothing to lose. And so I, I went to Las Vegas, um, sight, un, sight unseen. Um, I found a roommate in an apartment to rent um, for, on Craigslist, a nice apartment. I had a, a, a roommate and I lived there for two years, but, um, and made some great friends in the first couple of months of graduate school. 
but there was something that was like nagging at me like you know like this you're you're free you have lived these years like you know what it's like to drink you know what it's like to go to the club you know what it's like to have sex like you've done all of that but there was something in me that was like this is not who you are this is not who you are and i had i had to really wrestle with that um because i felt like i at the very least could be like a good church going person but i didn't feel like uh, this is, sounds weird i just didn't feel like for the type of church person that i was going to be like it it meant you know salvaging like having fun and so something caused me in that first couple of months of graduate school to look up a Kojic church. And I don't know if I rented a car. I don't know how I came in contact with this, um, with this church, but I looked up this church, um, called the Pentecostal temple church of God in Christ. I went there and I just remember the first Sunday that I gone there and I hadn't been to church in years as far as like, me just going to church just to just go. I can remember just, <laughs> this is going to sound real churchy and Kojic, but I just remember waking up after I had passed out over on the side of this church, like, and had decided and just completely give my life back to God. And it was such a rejuvenating feeling because it was really what I felt. Even though I'd gone to got, have my first job and experienced the first couple of months of graduate school in a new state that I had never lived in, there was something that like God was like, this is where I, I this is what I intended for this experience to be. And other people would be making these jokes about living in Sin City and not being saved. And, and, and there I was in this Kojic church, like, uh, you know, at the ripe age, I had to be at least um, 24 at the time. And I had given my life to God. And during the time that I was there, like, it was just a, a wild experience because I could feel like God being like, and I'm trying to tell you, when I got saved at about and rededicated my life to God in the age of, um, you know, in the 24, 25 era, like I was like the the whole, I'm just going to be a, I'm going to die a, like a senior deacon. I mean, that was heightened because Satan didn't want me to realize, he didn't want me to walk in what he knew God was going to be doing in my life. And so I was hype on the, I just want to be a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. Well, first it was, I just want to be a deacon. Then it was like, I just want to be a deacon and a Sunday school teacher and just do the Sunday school teaching on the side. And my friends, you know, as a young adult, like my friends embraced that in me. They would call me Bishop or like it would it just be just little things like that that I couldn't see in myself that they can see in me. And I just would be like, mm -mm, no, that's for you guys. And I just remember like going through that phase was like really crazy. I, I went through graduate school for two years, spent time there, built a really strong relationship with the pastor at the time, who's now the jurisdictional bishop. And he was really a good, um, he was very down to earth. He was a good um, example to me because he was a, a, a widowed preacher and he like he taught me so much and I appreciated that he spent the time and I didn't know like 
I didn't know. I, I couldn't I couldn't see in me what he could see. And I always would be like, well, the bishop, well, he wasn't the bishop at the time, but he would call and, 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 and talk to me and ask me how I experienced church and like what I thought about the message. And I would be thinking to myself, now, I'm sure that all these members that go to this church, I'm sure that he could call anybody. But there was something that he seen in me that I was doing. And, and, and when that experience ended, like I felt like something was ending prematurely. I felt like I was on the verge of something, but I had to get out of Vegas. It was just not my, and I couldn't find a job. So I was like, wherever I find a job, that's where I'm going. The Lord led me to Sacramento, and this was in the fall, in the summer of 2006. The Lord led me to Sacramento, and and well, let me back up. <laughs> Getting to Sacramento was crazy, and 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 I think. I'm saying all this because this is all integral to how how I realized my calling again. I was a graduate student assistant for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Alumni Association. And I had my, the, the supervisor that I had um, was great. He I, I had a little bit of an interest in alumni relations, and so it was a really helpful job. They didn't really have a lot for me to do, and so I would just sometimes just be there, you know, doing nothing, writing papers, doing homework. And it just so happened that the person that I was supervising, this person that was supervising me, rather, got another job in the South, and it was before the academic year ended like he literally just up and moved like nobody no you know i don't know how much information was provided to the employer or whatever but he up and moved a part of his responsibility was to manage the student um, student ambassadors and those are the students who provide tours to uh, donors and potential students on campus well because he left, it meant that um, I was res I became responsible for assisting in the supervision of this student group called the student um, the student ambassadors. They happened to be um, uh, like recognized as a student group, and there was a conference, which was an annual conference being held uh, for students who were involved in. Um, student ambassador tour guide type programs. Well, since my supervisor um, had left the job, um, they asked me to be the chaperone for this particular group. Now, this is not too difficult for me because at my job that I had before I went to graduate school at Southern Oregon University, I was responsible for the campus tour guides. And then in addition to that, I was a campus tour guide at the University of Oregon. So, I do a thing or two about being a campus tour guide and managing a ambassador program. So I um, was like, oh, yeah, I'll go to this trip. Where is it to? And they said that this trip was to Davis, California. Now, at this particular time, I had never been to California. Like, mind you, I have not gone anywhere, right? I was born in Seattle, Washington. I went to some middle school and high school in, in Portland, Oregon, went to the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, and then moved to Ashland, Oregon for my second or my first 
uh, real job that required me to essentially travel between Seattle and the city called Ashland. So I hadn't gone. I, was, I mean, I didn't know anything about California at all. My first trip to California, I flew into Sacramento Airport, and this particular conference was being held at UC Davis, but not really at UC Davis, just in Davis, hosted by UC Davis. And so I was in the process, I was in a really dark place because I had, I was on the verge of graduating with my master's degree from UNLV, but I had no, I, I was having struggle with finding a job. I had interviewed, um, you know, at that point, I don't know how many places I had interviewed at, but I had interviewed across the country. So maybe I had done a lot of travel. I hadn't, I, maybe I had come to California because I did interview at UCLA, but I had gone to like some smaller universities in Michigan. I, had, I mean, I had gone to flown a couple of different places, but at this point I was like really needing a job. My roommate in Las Vegas at that particular time, he bought a house and one day I did not, me and him didn't get along that well. And I found out that he bought a house because when I got home, he had one of those edible arrangement, edible, edible arrangement, um, uh, fruit bouquets like on the counter and it said, congratulations on your new home. One of those sugar cookies. And I thought to myself like, this dude wasn't even going to tell me that he was moving. So when he, at the end of the academic year, he, uh, was moving into his new home with his fiance, and I I was homeless and having now mind you I didn't know nobody in in Las Vegas aside from the people that I had met after being there for a year and a half, um, and so I was like in a dark place. I needed a job. I needed a place to stay. Literally, I, and I have never told anybody this. So if you got if you got this far, you're getting all kinds of secrets. I I stayed in a motel. I was staying in a motel while working over the summer in this particular job or towards the end of the academic year into the summer was staying at a motel close to campus. And uh, it was, the, the motel was so nasty that I, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly nasty, but they, it was pre-furnished and had one little couch and I was afraid to sleep on the bed because it just seemed nasty. And so I slept only on the living room on this little leather couch that they had because I could wipe that down. Um, so I um, got to the city of Eugene and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This had to be around May because um, the the city was just beautiful. It had a gap. And at that time, I was a real big fan of like Gap and Banana Republic. And Old Navy was kind of new. So I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I like Old Navy too. And they had a gap in the city of Davis. I was like, maybe I should apply for a job here. But I didn't think twice about it. I was just like, whatever. And it just so happened that the next week I was going to this conference called the National Association for Students personnel administrators. I think that's what it's called, NASPA. And at this NASPA thing, they have what is called a, a, like a job exchange where all these universities actually come to the conference and then you can interview for the job while you are there. And then you can insert yourself into a database where both the institution can find you and then you can find the institution and then you get to this random city. I think the, con the convention was in, in uh, I think it was, I'm going to say it was in Detroit, Michigan. I don't know, somewhere in the Midwest. And it just so happened that there was a job in Eugene, not in Eugene, in Davis, California, um, that was open. And I ended up applying for the position through this system. And I ended up interviewing. Well, um, they ended up 
having an interest in having me uh, come and interview. So I'd come back and forth and interview. I ended up getting the job, um, packed everything that I had up in a, um, in, in a, in a Jeep Cherokee that I rented. Um, I drove to Davis um, and had to find an apartment that, that during that little period of time and then drove back to uh, uh, Las Vegas and then flew back and that's how I moved here. Now, when I got here, I was really disengaged with church again, in particular, the reformation that I was a part of. And I was like, you know what? This is a fresh start. I'm not going to be Kojic anymore. I'm, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to no black church. I just want to go to a church where I can just slide in the back and like not be known or heard by anybody. And it was perfect because I was going through this pretty predominantly white city where I didn't know anybody, right? So I'm like, it's a college town. Nobody knows me. I don't know anybody. There was a church around the corner um, from my apartment that was just the perfect church. I mean, they were, it was a larger church. It was too big for anybody to know who I was. I, I was slipping the back, you know, and, and, and I just, just enjoyed it. And I, the, the thing that kept nagging at me was like, you're black, you, you're Kojic, you need to find a Kojic church. But I didn't know that Sacramento was down the street. The only relationship that I had with Sacramento was that I knew that that's the airport that you flew into. But when you fly into Sacramento, you don't see any cities or houses or, or anything. It's just the airport's in the middle of nowhere, literally. And so let me cut across the field because this story is getting long. I ended up um, deciding that the church I was attending was not enough and that I was Kojic and I just needed to face the reality that I was going to be Kojic. And I ended up finding um, a, a church. And I will never forget the first day that I, I had one suit, a brown suit, and I had decided I was going to put this brown suit on. Now, I lived in Davis. So I had to take the I had to take the Davis or the Yolo County city bus to downtown Sacramento. And then I had to take the, the train from downtown Sacramento deep into South Sacramento, Sacramento, and then get off the train and then walk maybe about half a mile to the church. And when I got to the church, my favorite deacon, who later became my godfather, invited me to be a preacher or a deacon in the parking lot. And I thought, okay, that's really weird. So I was like, uh -uh, I'm not going to be no preacher, no deacon. And so I decided that I wasn't going to go there. So I had started to find some other churches. And I would really be running from just the whole idea of like anything. I mean, I wanted to find the biggest possible church where nobody knew, nobody, I could sit in the back and nobody say anything. So I ended up like visiting this church for years, like maybe a year and a half without really joining or doing anything. Ultimately, I joined, and one day, um, because of the type of coaching that I am, you follow the pastor, and so I had gone to this, the pastor was preaching at this Baptist church called the St. James Holy Missionary Baptist Church, I believe, and he sees me in the parking lot. I have never had a one conversation with this man in my life, and he seen me in the parking lot and he said, uh, you want to be an armor bear? Like, <laughs> I don't know if he was just playing or if he just noticed the, how faithful I was or that I came to church. I don't know what it was. I was like, sure. And I'm not a preacher or anything like that. Um, the next Sunday I'd come to church, I remember one of the, the men that was always with him came out of the corner and found me and said, the pastor would like to speak to you. 
And I just remember being very scared and getting this quick orientation and being told, hey, like, this is what armor bearers do. You'll sit up here, you'll respect the pastor. And and that was like, the, and I sat in, in the sort of near the pulpit all those years. And then one day, like I was praying and going through and struggling. And the Lord said that if you want to live life to the fullest. Now, by this time, I was at least 32 years old, like maybe 32 years old. And he said, if you want to live life to the fullest and you want to experience all that I have for you, you've got to stop running. You've got to stop running for me. And I could hear the Lord saying that, but I was like, nah, I, I just, I don't want to, like, I don't want to be I don't want, I don't, it's not that worth it. This is a big church. They got a lot of preachers here. Like there was already young people that were like accepting their calling. I couldn't see myself as a fit. And I just was like, no way. I was already sitting in the pulpit. I could just act like a preacher or like hang out with the preachers. There was, I just didn't need to like feel like I was, you know, doing that. And the Lord kept nagging me and I started, you know, going through some difficulties um, professionally and I th things started to kind of collapse on me and I was like, okay, Lord, I, I, I don't want to be in California anymore. I got to figure out somewhere to go. And the Lord was like, no, the problem is not California. The problem is not your job. The problem is your inability to be obedient to what I'm doing and what I'm telling you to do. And so I got the courage when I was about 33 years old. I'll never forget the day. I, I did I was scared to make a meeting with the pastor. I mean I had all I was already armor bearer, so I was already always with him and I had driven him places and spent a lot of time with him, but I never and I would ask him questions. In fact I would get in trouble because I would ask too many questions like when he needed to be resting or when I was supposed to be driving. And this particular day, I just never remember. There was nobody else around. I was used to other people being around to kind of buffer and tell jokes. And, and I told the pastor, I started by telling him about my experience as an eight or nine-year-old. And I was telling him about my grandmother and how she nurtured me to be a preacher and how she bought me Bibles and would drive me to appointments and places where I was preaching and so on and so forth. And he looked at me and he was like, so... <laughs> I can just, I can see this experience, like, I mean, I can see this experience, like, this is clear as day. So he said, so you want to be a preacher because your grandma said you had to? And I was like, no, 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 I just, no, I thought that was the angle to, like, take to be like, this is how I know I'm called, like, an old seasoned missionary affirmed me as a preacher. But he was like, no. And I just, when we, when I got done saying my piece, answering a few questions, he said to me, you'll know that you're a preacher if nobody can stop you from preaching. Nothing will get in the way of your preaching. You will always want to preach no matter what. And then that was it. There was no like, preach tomorrow. This was like, I think in like maybe December of 2013 or something like that and nothing there was never any mention he didn't say anything and i remember getting home and like calling my grandmother and saying uh are you sitting down and she's like yes i said i told the pastor everything and she was like you did it and i was like yeah so that's kind of like 
how it came to be. But listen, I think that this is like way long. I don't know if anybody will be listening to this whole thing, but um, I won't say that the rest is history because I'm still living out what the rest is. But I think the thing that anchors me is that I walked away from God and I don't have the casualty of making it about myself. So I don't think about like, oh, what would life be like? Where would I be if I wouldn't, if I would have, you know, kept preaching or like, you know, I don't have the luxury of thinking about it like that because I'm so humble that God would take me back, that he would accept me after I essentially didn't accept him, that he would embrace me like even though I succumbed to the peer pressure and my own voice telling me that I was inadequate or not called or that he would embrace me after all that I had to go through. And the crazy thing is that I had to go through a lot of unnecessary things to fit in and to be cool. And all this time it was like, I'm an introvert. I was working real hard. I wanted to be something that I worked for all these years to be. And it was almost like it was a waste of time because it wasn't who God intended for me to be. And so I walk in this preaching thing with a certain humility because like God could have punished me for leaving him. He could have punished me for aborting what he put in me at an early age. And, and thinking about that like humbles me to the extent that I, I, I don't want to do anything to disappoint God as it pertains to my calling. And I carry that reminder with me that this is the second chance. This is the chance that God has given me to correct that essential, like that 20 years that I decided that I was grown and didn't need to obey God. And I hope that if there are other people that are watching that, if you have a calling on your life, if there's something that God wants you to do, number one, don't walk away from him. Don't walk away. The cost, there's a, the, the cost of walking away is so high, it is not worth it. But the, on the other hand, if you have walked away, you need to know that God will take you back. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. You need to know that God will take you back. He will restore you. He will restore you. There is nothing that you can do to make God stop loving you. And every day that you get a chance to honor him with your life and with your gifting, take advantage of that. And so at this stage in my life, when people talk about me being a good preacher, or if I get invited to speak somewhere, or somebody speaks something into my life, like, I don't let myself get a big head because in my own heart, I'm not even supposed to be here. Like, I'm operating on the grace of God. Like, the grace that God extended to me to preach is not because I'm so good or because I'm so powerful or because... I'm, 
anything. Like everything that I have is because God was like, I love him and I'm going to forgive him for walking away and I'm going to embrace him and, and I'm going to elevate him and I'm going to show him the, the bountiful blessings that I have, even when we, when we make a mistake. And that, that is the, the attitude. That's the mindset that I really walk in in, especially in this season, like, I don't, I don't look at, at like, oh, God's gonna like, you know, make me the pastor of some church. Like, I am so humbled to be in the space that I am in now, that the, the opportunity to serve and to work and to learn and to glean and to be around wisdom, like, to me, that's enough. And it is even humble when people see me as competition. I'm like, really? Like, I used you just have no idea. Like, I barely hear. Like, I just, I like, I sometimes like am like, this is unreal. It's unreal because it's not the trajectory that I had in mind. I was going around telling people that I was going to be a deacon or something. I mean, I just, I just, I dishonored the gift that God had put in my life for so many years, and He was like, still. Still, I still love you. I still want to use you. And that's the greatest gift that I have ever received is the gift of grace to preach. And I'm thankful to God for that. And I hope that maybe if you've gotten to this point and you listen to the whole thing, that you realize that God loves you the same way. He loves you the same way. He loves you the same way. And nothing, you've, you're not, you've not gone too far, you've not traveled too far away, that he can redeem you back to himself. Were you blessed by this episode? Do you think it would bless someone else? It would really bless me if you share this episode with someone who you know needs assurance of God's promises. Also, i love it if you subscribe to my podcast, Season with Salt, and wrote a review. This helps us to spread the gospel even farther through podcasting. Thank you so much for listening, and remember what God's Word says in Colossians 4 and 6. Let your word be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Have a great week.